0: Hi there, this is the Powerpoint Tribe where our vibe is faith and our food is the word. Prepare to be strengthened and encouraged through the teachings of God's word and the ministry of the spirit. From, How many of you love God's word? Yummy, yummy, yummy. Hallelujah. Praise God. Where do we begin from? Lord, help me. Okay. Somewhere is fine. All right. Um, Amen. So, we started to talk about priesthood as a strategy for leadership last week. How that God insists on priesthood before making men kings. How that we are priests before we are made royal. So, we are his royal priesthood. Priesthood is the baseline upon which he then mounts the crown, and how that priesthood is the sustenance of kingship. Without priesthood, your kingship will be shameful, like we observed in the life of King Saul, how he became a shameful king. And he was not the kind of king that anybody was supposed to look at as an example because he was a shameful king because he was never a priest. How the protocol of leadership in God's kingdom is first priesthood, then the prophetic, before kingship. But for Saul, alright, he was reversed. He was first a king, then he became an atmospheric, accidental prophet, then he was never a priest. And that was his undoing. Praise the name of the Lord. So today we'll just continue to talk about priesthood a bit more. Because I really think that somewhere the Lord would have us tabernacle and understand and glean serious stature. As far as our service to him is concerned. Praise the name of the Lord. What you would observe in the life and ministry of Moses is something akin to this template. How that he was actually first trained by a king. He was trained by Pharaoh. He was, he was trained under the leadership of of Pharaoh because Pharaoh's daughter adopted him. And so he learned the nuances and the protocol of the Egyptian, you know, civilization. He understood the protocol of kingship. He could command. He could instruct. He could give instructions. He could, he could behave. He could walk. He could talk like a king. But he was nowhere near ready as far as the agenda of God for the people of God and Yemen especially of the Israelites from Egypt was concerned. Such that even after all his training, after 40 years, when he came of age, all his power could do was to kill. He didn't use that power to serve. And that is the inadvertent reality of a man that has only learned from Pharaoh, a king, who has not been subdued under the submission of the leadership of a man like Jethro, the priest. And so the first 40 years, he learned under a king, but he was a faulty leader. And God recognized that and then took him to a certain man called Jethro, a priest from Midian. And sometimes it's an act of God's mercy to reroute your, your training and the facilitation of your advancement and development in the scheme and agenda of God for your life. If you, may have, if you have advanced to the stature of a king first, in God's mercy, he will first bring you back to priesthood before you can then assail to become a leader over God's people. And so Pharaoh may have trained Moses... But Moses was not ready to yet be a leader over God's people until Jethro had ministered to him and trained him and put him under subjection for another 40 years. And after those 40 years under the priest of Midian, then God looked at him and said, "Okay. Now you are perhaps ready to be a leader and grand commander over my people." We must not discount, dismiss and disregard the role of priesthood in kingship. The moment we begin to assume that all I need to be a leader is trainings and you know Harvard business schools, reviews, and, and, and executive educations, and understanding a pharaoh who is sitting on the throne, then we miss the back end of sustenance in kingship. Because you may have studied under pharaoh and still be a woeful king. So, if you have met your pharaoh, have you met your Jethro? Have you studied on that that Jethro? Have you gone to be schooled on that Jethro, the priest at Midian? Even though you have been taught and schooled by the king in Egypt. Because there's something priesthood will add that Pharaoh can never give. Kingship will not give it. And you ought to start from priesthood so that you don't elongate your journey. We all know that he elongated the journey of the children of Israel by 30 years by that foolish act of intervention. He came from a genuine place. He was overly emotional. And that's what begins to happen. Your emotions will take better part of you when all you learn is kingship without priesthood. You will learn how to subdue your emotions. Killed a man and then he was hiding and then he he became apparent. And that's what happens. By the time you you fail the class of priesthood before getting into kingship, the people you you are called to lead will reject you. Then he went to the, the next day, he saw two of his brethren striving. And he was saying, you are brothers. You shouldn't be fighting. And he said, "Who will make you a judge over us. You want to kill one of us like you did to the man yesterday? You thought we didn't see you? In, their, in his mind, he thought they should have accepted it and seen him as their king, as their savior, as their leader. But they rejected him because they didn't see the statue of a priest. Amen. You will weaponize the power that you have if you've not learned priest, priesthood. will inadvertently praise the name of the lord and so it's important that you understand how important this whole idea of priesthood is to your advancement as a leader in god's kingdom and without leaders god cannot make anything transgenerational anything god does in a generation will die in that generation if he does not find a leader that can command his praise to the next generation And this is what we begin to see in Matthew chapter 1 and verse 17. Let's quickly go there. Very quickly. Matthew chapter 1 and verse 17. The Bible says these are the generations between Abraham, David, Babylon, and then the Christ. And you would observe something very, very profound. This Bible says, so all the generations from Abraham to David are 14 generations. And from David unto the carrying away into Babylon are 14 generations. And from the carrying away into Babylon... Unto Christ are 14 generations. How many generations in total? Three groups of 14 generations. That's 42 generations, isn't it? 42 generations and only three personalities showed up in those 42 generations. Three personalities and one condition. And it's interesting because 42 generations divided by the perfect seven is six. And six is the number of humanity and mankind. And so when God looks at the entire landscape of humanity and the human genealogy, he sees only 42 generations. And in these 42 generation, generations, he sees only three personalities and one condition. He sees Abraham, he sees David, he sees Jesus Christ, and then he sees Babylon. And this is the condition of anyone who has not assumed the statue of Abraham, David, or Christ. He is perpetual in Babylon. And pa- Babylon is confusion, visionlessness, lack of leadership. That's what Babylon is, confusion. Where there is no vision, Bible says, the people will perish. So, a generation started in Abraham. 14 generations later, David assumed stature. 14 generations later, there was nobody to assume the stature in the capacity of Abraham or David. And so, the people of God went into exile, into Babylon. 14 generations later, we find Jesus Christ. And so, every single time the Lord does not find a man in the stature of Abraham, David, or Christ, the only other option that that man is experiencing... Is Babylon. Confusion, visionlessness, lack of leadership. And so the question to you today is, who are you patterning your own prototype after? Because we see the progression in Abraham, in David, and in Jesus Christ. We see in Abraham a man that commanded his family after him. He commanded his family. You see, that was why, like I said last week, that was why God could not do a certain type of eternal work with either Abel, Enoch, Noah, or any of the patriarchs before Abraham. Abraham was the fifth man from Adam. That's the number for grace. And so Abraham was the first man that God saw, and God knew that whatever I start with Abraham will not end with Abraham it will transit to the next generation. And so he said, whatever I tell him, he will command his family after him. And so for the first time, God became the God of three people, Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And so we know in Abraham, a man that had the capacity to command his own private constituency, so much so that his family had become an army. 318 soldiers born in his house, not soldiers, servants. They had become soldiers because he had wielded the capacity of those people under his household. He could command his family after him. In David, we find a man who could command an army. And in Jesus Christ, we find a man who can command a generation. You see the progression in stature. Abraham, David, the Christ. And that is how you must grow and evolve as well as a leader. You command your private constituency. Then you begin to command an army. Then you can start commanding a dispensation, a generation. Jesus Christ is the only person whose presence and impact or or rather whose impact has been louder in his absence than in his presence. The strength of his ideology, the strength of his leadership was so strong that he gathered much more members and and followers, much more in his death than while he was alive. The strength of his leadership became so transgenerational, became so interdispensational that 2,000 years after he's long gone, his fame is still spreading abroad faster and farther than it was when he was still alive on earth. The strength of leadership. And when God looks at the human race, he sees 42 generations and he sees three landmarks or he sees four landmarks, three personalities, one condition. And when a generation is not discipled by Abraham, David or Christ, they are in Babylon. And that's why you begin to see some civilizations where the founding fathers may have erected the substructure, all right, of that civilization on the canon of scripture and human rights, understanding that every single person carries within him the image of God. And that is why he must be an individual that pursues after the tenets of the Christ. And then several centuries later, we begin to see the same civilization, all right, they, 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 they usurp the authority that God has given them and they begin to go about establishing their own ideology of individualism. Because individualism is a concept that is only safe under the government of Christ. You are only an individual to the extent that you are in Christ. Because it's in Christ you find the tenet for which you must govern your life. The moment you step out of Christ, you have no cursor. You have no reference point for meaning. It is in him we live, we move, we have our being. The moment you step out of him, you lose reference point. You can no longer tell whether you are in east, west, north or south. You can't even locate yourself. And then you begin to say, maybe I can morph. Maybe gender is different from sex. Maybe I'm not supposed to be what I am. Maybe I'm not supposed to be... I, I begin to question things and you become existential in your ideology. Because you lost your anchor. You lost your reference point. The leadership of Abraham, David, and Christ insists that there must be a discipleship curriculum for every generation. And the moment a generation deviates from the curriculum of leadership organized by Abraham, David, and the Christ, what they find themselves in is Babylon, confusion, wickedness, and the weaponization of power. Where every leadership position It's all about amassing wealth, getting all I can, canning all I get, and sitting on top of the can, and insisting that the next generation fails woefully, because I was the the previous president, because I was a previous king, and there's no hope for the next generation, because that is all the kingship that is void of priesthood will offer, that is all it can offer, until they erode the very fabric of morality, they will not stop, that's the plan of Babylon, and Babylon never lasts. You could never have looked at Babylon and assumed that it was going to stop at some point. But right there, in that generation of Daniel, in the same generation that the vision came upon Daniel, Babylon disintegrated. Can you imagine? There was no way you could have looked at Babylon and assumed that it could be toppled by any reign or any king. Babylon, the fiercest civilization ever known, most powerful, most dominant. And a stone came and then began to destroy that image. And Babylon was the first collateral damage. Kai. And then we see Persia. And then we see the Greek. And then we have what we have today. A mixture. Kai. But the stone is still destroying. And until the kingdom of our Lord has become the kingdom of the Lord and his Christ, he will not stop. Until the kingdom of heaven and earth come to acknowledge the reign and the supremacy of the Lord Jesus Christ, that stone will not stop destroying. Every civilization that does not have Christ at the center of it has no capacity to sustain itself. It has no capacity to sustain itself. He is the center of all things. The Bible says he is before all things. And by him, all things consist. Confusion, wickedness. That is the inevitable reality of any state, polity, society that is void of the discipleship mandate upon Abraham, David, and the Christ. Are you able to command your family? Are you able to command an army? Are you able to command a generation? So Abraham's grace was that he could transfer. David's grace was that he could transform. (laughs) Christ's grace is that he can transit from a generation, from a dispensation to another. So beyond just my generation like David... Will the ends of the earth know that I ever existed? 2,000 years after I'm gone. That is only what Christ's great seed can achieve. That's what leadership is all about. It's about transferring ideas and ideologies. Becoming an example. It's about transforming lives. And it's about ensuring that that thing is commanded to the next generation. So that it does not end in that first generation that heard and learned of that ideology. Praise the name of the Lord. So when the Lord looks at our life right now, is He seeing Abraham? Is He seeing David? Is He seeing Christ? If He's not seeing any of those three things, there's only one condition He's seeing: Babylon, confusion, social media. But you don't even realize that you are being governed by an ideology that you did not choose. The ideology chose you, and you did not realize that you are now obeying the dictates of that ideology. The friends of Daniel did not realize that they were already being cultivated, acculturized, and desensitized to their former estate in Jerusalem. It started with meat. It started with, with the king's dainties and wine. They didn't even think, they didn't come and say, come and start worshiping another god. It started entering into their social life, their culture, what they ate. And Daniel, from, the, from that look, from the very first day, he recognized the agenda. He said, I will not eat this thing. Because eventually we saw the agenda of Nebuchadnezzar, bow. The ultimate end is to bow. But it will start with, you know, desensitizing you. Reducing your threshold for resistance. So that you will keep bowing at every whim. By the time he says bow, you don't have the resistance anymore. All the areas you could have said no, he, he he has already compromised your system. And only those who were saying no from the first start could say no at the point of bowing. So, if you are not saying no initially, you can now start and raise an altar of no when push comes to shove, to bow to Nebuchadnezzar. Amen. Babylon. Babylon is the reality of any civilization that is not governed by the curriculum of leadership found in Abraham, found in David, and found in the Christ. And you find that curriculum in priesthood. There's only priesthood that can teach you these things. Kingship will not teach you. Kingship tells you how to dole out commands. How to give instructions, how to sign bills, how to give edicts and and decrees and make injunctions and and create confusion, (laughs) how to to just give orders. It's priesthood that teaches you how to sacrifice. It's only in priesthood. Everybody serves the king, but the priest is serving everybody. There's a difference. Praise the name of the Lord. And so, if he's a priest that eventually becomes a king, he will be a servant king. Are we ready this morning? So let's... Hallelujah. Mm -hmm. Let's begin to examine what I call the key priesthood imperatives. Key priesthood imperatives. You may want to call my teaching KPIs. Key priesthood imperatives. Key priesthood imperatives. If your leadership is not un- underguarded by priesthood, you'll be a foolish king. You'll be a, a king that will destroy the fabric of morality within your reign because you do not have priesthood that can sustain your kingship. So priesthood is the basis for kingship. If a man lacks the basic training in priesthood, he will be a shameful king. Kingship can be assumed in a hurry. Between Saul meeting Samuel and him assuming the king position, it was only a few weeks into months. Between David getting anointed in his father's house as a 17-year-old boy and becoming the king over Judah alone was 13 years. Because you cannot pressure cook priesthood. You can become a king in a hurry, but not priesthood. If God must make you a king, his first class for you is priesthood. In any other domain, you can rise. But in this kingdom, we fall to rise. You can just rise by scheming. But in this kingdom of our Lord and his Christ, you must fall to rise. So your leadership will only rise or fall on the level of your priesthood. Hmm. It will only rise or fall on the level of your priesthood. And your leadership capacity is the most reliable metric for the presence of wisdom in your life. If you are not first a priest before you become a king, your kingship will lack wisdom. And I will show you through the life of Solomon. So there are three key priesthood imperatives that we must all understand, for us to be effective priests, all right, under the government of our Lord Jesus Christ. Before we go there, let's just quickly check out Exodus 19. One of our members sent me this over the course of the week, and I found it very refreshing, because it shows that someone is paying attention. And um, Exodus 19, very quickly, hallelujah. (laughs) Praise the Lord. Exodus chapter 19, from verse 5. So the Bible begins to say that now, therefore, if you will obey my voice indeed and keep my covenant, then ye shall be a peculiar treasure unto me above all people, for all the earth is mine. So he made the conditions for their reign, priesthood. By verse 6, you see, he says, and ye shall be unto me a kingdom of priests. And and holy nation, these are the words which thou shalt speak unto the children of Israel. So he conditioned their reign as the most peculiar treasure of God upon the face of the earth, which is literally kingship. He conditioned it upon their capacity to obey his voice and follow the precepts of his commandments. When they do this, he said they will become a kingdom of priests. So the kingdom must be full of priests, not kings kingdom that God is trying to establish upon the face of the earth. It's not a kingdom of kings. It's a kingdom of priests. Only priests can truly reign. Every single king in the land of Israel, they were measured by their priesthood. Right. And so you read First Chronicles, First Kings, Second Chronicles and all those parts of scripture, you begin to see all the narrations about kings. And all you see about them is that either they built a high place or they pulled down a high place. And by the time they tell us what they did to the high places, that is all they tell us about the kings. Their entire narratives was, was surrounded or was literally around whether they handled the gods of the day by pulling, the, pulling it down, alright? Or establishing God as the, as the modus operandi of the land. So if they pulled it down, they were seen in the canon as good kings. If they did not pull it down and they started even proliferating and establishing more high places, more than the ones they met, they were seen as vagabond kings. Kings that lacked rudder and direction because every kingship is judged by the quality of priesthood. Are you hearing what I'm saying? So there were kings that continued to just increase the number of high places. (laughs) In fact, there was a king that said, there's no need to go to Jerusalem. (laughs) Jerusalem. Just come to. I will. I will make priests for you people. You want Levites? Don't worry. This one is a a caricature Levite. He will dress like one of them, and he will will become my priest. You don't need to go so far to Jerusalem. You can worship God anywhere. (laughs) Vagabond kings. Did he understand priesthood? And so there are three key priesthood imperatives, which is the emphasis of our session today. The first thing you need to understand about priesthood. This is so important. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. Hebrews chapter 5 and verse 1. Bible says that every priest is taken from amongst men. Are you hearing what I'm saying? And ordained for men in things pertaining to God. That means no priest can afford to be an angel. No priest can afford to be a spirit being. Every priest must be taken from amongst men and ordained for men but concerning things pertaining to God so that they may learn to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. What does that tell you? That means you cannot be a priest that is detached from the reality of the people that you are leading. You cannot be an angel and a priest. No. Your priesthood is hinged on the capacity to identify with the people that you are leading. Because the moment you cannot be identifying with the people you are leading, the people you are leading cannot also receive corrections and applicable insights from your leadership. Because you are different, obviously. Your realities are different. The, the, the kind of context you have, we don't have it. Why should we follow your leading? And that is why Jesus himself had to become a man, to become the mediator. So Jesus changed his eternal infrastructure and being so that he can retain the status of our high priest. So there is one mediator. First Timothy 2.5 Between God and man. And the Bible calls the man Jesus Christ. Not the spirit. Not the angel. Not the son of God. Not the word. The man. Because it is a major qualification for high priesthood. You cannot be a high priest if you are not first able to be touched by the feelings of the infirmity of the people you are leading. So every priest is taken from amongst men ordained for men but concerning things pertaining to God so a high priest is like a bridge he understands the protocol of acceptable offerings and sacrifices before God but he has the justification and the legal rights to stand before God for man because he's a man and so one of the things God will do is to place you in conditions hmm, consistent with the people that you will lead in the future are you hearing what I'm saying there are things you are going through right now you are praying God will not take it away because there will be people you will meet five years time that it is the strength you gathered in those five years of staying in the cave of Adullam that would help strengthen them by the time you begin to lead them until you are able to identify with the people you are leading there is not going to be a strength to your leadership there won't be a strength because there is no identification and so when, Jesus, when David was at his highest level of distress that was when he attracted those 100 men there was a level of distress he had to descend into Hey, in fact he had just acted like a madman he had just acted like a bad man in 1 Samuel 22. And by the time he went to the cave, of Adelan, 400 men just gravitated towards him. Now you have justified the condition for attracting us. You are in enough distress. <laughs> you are now in enough distress that can justify our coming to you. Because if you were not in enough distress, there was no message you could preach to us. How, how do we know that you can help us? You've not been through what we have been through and survived. We are still going through it. How can you help our lives? this is one of the reasons why we go through the things we go through and there's nothing more powerful than your experiences god can weaponize it to become a strong axe head in this to come stop judging god and blaming god for your experiences look inward and ask god why why is there somebody this thing is meant for we do not have a high priest who cannot be touched by the feelings of our infirmity but He was in every point Tem- as we are yet without sin so we know that he can help us not to sin because he has experienced every bit of our nuances and our emotional agitations yet he did not succumb to the pressure of sin so if I understand that I have a high priest who was first a man and succumbed and overcame or rather he overcame the pressure of sin I know that even in my humanity I can overcome sin because I have a high priest who was also a man but if he was an angel being my savior I can always excuse it away that he was at least an angel he was actually a shy spirit being. He was not a man. He is a man. In fact, he is still a man. Still a man. So that you can have no reasons to excuse yourself away from living a holy life. So that you can know that Jesus did it, I can do it. And that is the exact reason he did it. He went through every nuance. You say, ah, does God understand what it means to be a young man who doesn't have a wife and then all ladies are dressing scandalously? He does. He does. He does. The Bible says he's touched by the feelings of our infirmity. Hey, if he did not go through every inch of the nuances of our hormonal discharges, the Bible would not say it. He was touched by every ounce of the feelings of our infirmity. He was in every point, the Bible says, tempted as we are. The things he escaped in those three years, he experienced every single bit of it on the cross. The things he did not experience in his lifetime... Every single one of them was poured upon him. He did not sin. He became the figure of sin. He became sin. Don't you understand? So he went through every single nuance. The Bible says he did not contribute sin to the entire process. And so because of that, we can hold fast the profession of our faith. We can hold fast to it. That we have a high priest. So until you are able to identify with the people that you are sent to, your message will not be strong in their hearts. the same principle for followership anywhere in the world today you listen to people you can connect with you connect with them because they speak to you directly they speak there's something they are saying that is touching you somewhere like this this guy gets me (laughs) this guy just gets me the pharisees stayed in in a bubble they lived in a bubble only in synagogues floating away so whenever they came to speak to people they never connected to them so people just what are they saying they will just live in, in synagogues and be collecting tithes and offerings and taxes from everybody. Where's your tax? Where's your tithe? Where's your tithe? The, the, the law of Moses said. The law of Moses said, you don't understand the pains of the people. You don't understand that fuel has increased. You don't understand. You don't understand that even to travel to Ghana now, ah, you don't understand the nuances. You are living in a bubble as a Pharisee, living in a synagogue. So Jesus stayed a carpenter for thirty years, so that he will buy fuel so that he would understand the pains of the people. So that by the time he begins to speak on the first year of his ministry, everyone would hear him. I'm like, what? What kind of wisdom is this? The Bible said he speak with authority. He had been through every bit of their own journey as well. So by the time he spoke to them, they could connect with him. Unequivocally, this man is sent to us. He understands us. He speak with authority. The Pharisees, no, they didn't speak with authority. There was no connection. They lived in a certain realm. They were speaking to people from another realm. And so there was no connection. And, and, you know, the Holy Spirit was telling me that, do you realize that that's one of the reasons why I have asked you to do a 9 to 5? Because it's easy for pastors to live in a bubble. Oh, it's easy. You just come to church, preach a good sermon, talk about rapture, eschatology. Just talk about abstract things, the word of God, angels, Demons. Nobody has seen an angel. Nobody has seen a demon. They, they can't relate to what you're saying, and then you ask for offerings, ask for tithe, and then you are you are sorted economically. You need you need funds. You just raise an offering, and you get sorted. How many of them can raise an offering to sort out their bills? How many of them can raise an offering? How many of your people can believe God, and say, God, I need a car, and is and there's. Because they don't have a context where they are sowing so much word into another person's life. That the person can just vex and give them two cars in one week. They don't have that context. But you will share your testimony as if you share their context. And this is one of the biggest deceptions in the body of Christ. The way the man of God shares his testimony, you don't receive it too clear and sinker because you don't have his context. In one week, he can get two million naira in one week. How many people have you blessed enough in the context of a platform like this? And so you must enter into to their experiences to say the way they can live by faith in their own terms. Such that they need something. They are doing a 9 to 5. There's nobody to bless them. They've never been pastors before. It's either their boss blesses them or they don't get blessed. It's that they pay them salary or there's no money coming to their account. How do you live by faith in such a context? They don't know. Because all you talk about is how you raised an offering or how you went to one country and there's somebody bless you with a the car. They don't have that context. How do they live by faith from your teachings? They can't identify with you. And that was causes frustrations from an, a lot of people. Well, this tight thing have gone, and they begin to agitate. Because they're like, we, we cannot receive tight. We cannot receive benefit from this tight thing, thing. Where do we get our own livelihood from? This first message, is it really trans context? Can it transit from your context to my context? And it's still the same, not lacking in verity and quality. Or if it is my own context, because when really will you also begin to ask God, or financial rescuing like your members until you have been able to prosecute faith at the level of your members you can't teach them how to live by faith at their level as well because you'll just be speaking mysteries abstractness because hmm. I didn't understand at some point that, okay, so, I mean full time ministry I'm supposed to be doing full time ministry word 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 I remember that teaching I did where the plan of the devil was to keep the people of God In the temple perpetually. If he kept them in the temple perpetually, he knew they couldn't influence culture. He knew they couldn't propagate the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. The devil has you in a very good place if you're a synagogue guy. He has you in a very good place. You'll just be speaking Christianese. You'll just be speaking language that the marketplace doesn't understand. You get into a market context, you you are dumb. Have you ever seen Paul dumb? He was talking to kings, he knew what to say. He's talking to laymen, he knows what to say. He's talking to philosophers, he knows what to say. He's talking to Greeks, he knows what to say. Anyway you throw him, Ariopagos, or in front of Felix, or in front of Jews, he knows exactly what to say. He has been through all those contexts. So he can connect with intellectuals, laymen, kings, men of authority, rich, jailers. <laughs> yeah. And so, he, God has made him a high priest who was taken from amongst men. All right, ordained for men concerning things pertaining to God. So the experiences you are going through is not for you. It's for the people that will learn from the things you have gone through and survived so that they will not succumb to the pressure of sin. So that you can offer gifts and sacrifices for sin. And so the high priest at the time in the Old Testament, what they did was that there was a breastplate upon their shoulders, kai. And then there was, a, there was, there was another breastplate upon their hearts. So upon those breastplates, there were stones, graven stones. They did not have an identity in the holiest of all, Jesus. So the Holy, the, you don't go to the holiest of all with your name that Damio Gisela has come on. No! The only person that the Lord God Almighty is seen in the holiest of all is Levi, Naphtali, all right? Jesu, Judah upon your shoulders you had all the names of the twelve tribes of Israel. Upon your heart as well. On your shoulders and upon your heart. Such that your identity is subsumed in their burdens. Your identity, you are bearing the burden of intercession on your shoulder. And you are bearing the burden of shepherding upon your heart. Through compassion and, and love. Heartfelt love. Such that when you enter into the holiest of all, God is no longer seeing you as your name. He is seeing you in the context of the twelve tribes of Israel you lose your identity to the reality of the people you are representing. So until a high priest can be identified by the people he represents, until they can identify with you, you are not yet their priest. And what do we admire the most about kings is this priesthood side. The fact that he's a king, but he comes to the market. Even though some people do doctoring and uh, photo ops during elections, they just begin to start buying a badu. You just notice that they just enter streets. The, 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 tomorrow is election. You just see a picture of them eating corn with the market woman. How are you? Uh, well done. Uh, and then you see them doing things. I like, what's all this now? Did you do this the first three years? Now you want you want to be because they understand the mystery. That if you have not shown priesthood, your kingship will be will, 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 will remove you from kingship. It's priesthood to identify with the realities of the people. That's priesthood. even them, they know. I've been destroying lives for the past three years. I've been embezzling money for the past three years. But this last six months, I want to make an impression. I'm a good man. So I I will will go and buy corn. I'll go and buy corn. See, a man understood this mystery. The man said a thing and everybody voted him. He said, I had no shoes. He said, ah, you didn't have shoes. Ah, we have many that didn't have shoes. We'll vote for the man that didn't have shoes. It's a mystery. Once people can identify with you, you have them. So he said one thing that the bulk of Nigerians can identify with. It's just sad. Like a poverty, poverty metrics. He said one thing that the bulk of Nigerians could identify with. And we couldn't resist that appeal. Nigerians could not deny him their votes. Because he had appealed to a certain level of their core. He identified with them in their low estate, And so they couldn't deny him their votes. It's the a mystery. You want to lead from afar, you want to lead from a distance. Imagine Saul sitting on the king, I mean on the throne, asking everybody to go and fight. Who is it that can fight for me? I uh, will give him half of my kingdom and my daughter. We just fight. He was so detached from the anxiety of the valley of Ella, sat on a great white throne asking people to come and submit their CVs to fight. Why did we elect you as our king? Are you not supposed to be in the valley of Ella, feeling the entire hustle bustle and understanding the nuances of the the fears of the soldiers and charging at even if you are going to die, risk it. You sit on one throne and telling everybody, doling out bounties. The king is not supposed to be like that. You're supposed to serve the people. You're supposed to be a priest. So every priest must first learn to identify with the people that he has been called to serve. That's priesthood. That's not kingship, that's priesthood. That is Saul being a king. That is just Saul being a king. If he had come down, that would be him being a king priest. Amen. So it's important that you understand that as a high priest. Your reality and your identity must be subsumed in the reality of the people you represent. That in the holiest of all, God is not interested in your face. He's not interested in your name. Who did you come here for? Who did you come to intercede on behalf of? Who have you come to stand in gap for? Who are you really here for? Did you come here for yourself? And you see why some people, some, some people, God has delayed their kingship because all their prayers are selfish prayers. What was the last time you actually interceded for a person? Interceded for a people. Interceded for somebody apart from yourself. When was the last time? When was the last time? I said, Lord, make me a king. You can't can't just come into kingship like that. You've got to be a priest first. You must satisfy the conditions of priesthood. So what's the first thing? What's the first imperative? The capacity to identify with the people you have been called to serve. Number two imperative for priesthood. Is your reverence for the sacredness of the holiest of all evidenced by your obsession with instructions? Your reverence for the sacredness of the holiest of all, and how we know you have reverence for the holiest of all is your obsession. Did you hear what I said? Not preference, obsession for instructions. When you are a priest, you are, not, you are not supposed to be discretionary. Priests don't show discretion. You are, your, your job is not to be discretionary. Your job is to ask for the manual. What is the manual for survival in the earliest of all? <laughs> that, that is what the priest asks for. You shall, you shall, you shall spray three droppings of the menorah. You shall, you shall, you shall, you shall slaughter at this point. You shall take two forks of the intestine of the lamb, alright, and burn the rest in fire. You shall. You shall. The fire must not go out from the temple. You shall. You shall. You shall. There was never a time where God left any single nuance in the williest of all for discretionary, you know, processes and purposes. Like, okay, if in case you can choose to do as you please. <laughs> Priests are obsessed with instructions you enter into the holiest of all and then you see that it's stuffy. say, ah, this place is stuffy. Then you take air freshener. That's the last thing you will puff in your life. It's the last. Thing. Air freshener. Ah, this place is stuffy, stuffy. Holiest of all. You don't, you, don't, you don't use discretion there. God says, speak to the rock. You say, this rock is hard. Let's strike it. You lose the promised land. The implication for a disalignment in priesthood is immediate. It's immediate. You must be obsessed with receiving instructions as a priest. You cannot assume what God is not saying. You can't assume it. The water is bitter. You want to add sugar. It's called Mara for a reason. There is a prophetic word that will come into your spirit and then you give an instruction that will make the water sweet. It's not sugar. You don't use discretion. You receive a word. You receive a word. Second Samuel chapter 5. Quickly from verse 17, you begin to see how David, the exact same problem presented itself to David twice in a row. Twice in a row, he was presented the exact same problem. He responded two, I mean, opposite ways, two different ways, because he was obsessed with receiving instructions. Somebody else in another context would have just applied the thing that worked in the first context, and then Abba, it's the same thing now. In science and in medicine, if the problem presents itself the same way, every single time is the same solution, isn't it? If it is a headache, it has to be parado or par- paracetamol. I mean, you, you don't invent a new drug for an old disease or condition. Do you understand? So science does not understand this. But in the realm of the supernatural, it's not the same solution for the same problem every time. 2 Corinthians 5 verse 17. But when the Philistines heard that they had anointed David king over Israel, this was when he was 37 years of age. They became king over Israel. He was anointed 17. 20 years before that, prophecy came to pass. Because God was cooking him in priesthood. (laughs) And this always happens. Every time any king is anointed, especially Saul, and David, Philistines would always come. So prepare for Philistines. But it's your priesthood that will make you survive. All the Philistines came to seek David, and David heard of it, and went down to the hold. Next verse, quickly. The Philistines also came and spread themselves in the valley of what? Rephaim. The next verse. And David inquired of the Lord, saying, Shall I go up to the Philistines? Will thou deliver them into my hand? And the Lord said unto David, Go up, for I will doubtless deliver the Philistines into thy hand. The next verse. And David came to Baal-perazim, and David smote them there and said, The Lord hath broken forth upon mine enemies before me as the bridge of the waters. Therefore he called the name of that place Baal-perazim. The next verse. And there they left their images, and David and his men burned them. You burn high places as a priest. Anything that is not consistent with the service of your Lord and Savior, you burn it. That's how you show that you're a priest. You burn it. And so the Bible says they burned it, and then the Philistines came up yet again this same problem. They came up yet again. Now, we don't know the distance between the first challenge and the second one. It may have been weeks, it may have been months, but I mean, it was captured in the exact same chapter, so we know that it was not too far apart. And so the Philistines came up yet again and spread themselves in the valley of what. Rephaim, the same problem, presented the same way. The same problem presented the same way. What did David do? He didn't say, ah, God told me to go and pursue an old." The next thing, when David inquired of the Lord, why are you inquiring? Are you, are you a dullard? Copy and paste now. Why do you have past questions? You don't do past questions as a priest. If it's a problem that you have, hey, why do you pray to go to the same work every day? The same work. The same problem. The same challenge. But fresh dose of wisdom. Fresh dose of insight. Fresh dose of direction. Trust in the Lord with all your heart. Lean not on your own understanding. In all your ways. In all. Including the ways you have done 10,000 times. That 1,000 or the 10,000 and first time. You pray again. That Lord, I'm about to do it again. Help me. That's that's the pattern of priesthood. The Bible says, And when David inquired of the Lord, he said, Thou shalt not go up. What? I thought you told me to go up the the first time, which is not not long ago. Literally, last week, you told me to go up. The same Philistines presenting the the same valley of Rephaim. I have the same set of soldiers. We can defeat them again. That shall not go up, but fetch a compass and behind them and come upon them over against the mulberry trees. See the strategy. The next verse. And let it be, when thou hearest the sound of it going in the tops of the mulberry trees, then thou shalt bestir thyself, and and then shall the Lord go out before thee to smite the host of the Philistines. The next verse. And David did so, as the Lord had commanded him, and smote the Philistines from Geba, until thou come to Gaza. The exact same problem presented the exact same way. Two absolutely divergent strategies for solution. This is how priests are. They are obsessed. Why is David asking? Nine times recorded in scripture, we see David asking, inquired of the Lord, shall I go? Shall I not go? Shall I pursue? Why would somebody steal your property and you're asking, shall I collect it back? What, 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 kind, of, what kind of a dollar are you? Somebody slapped you say, said, shall I defend myself? Somebody collected your property they burned your stuff, collected your wife and your children and their properties from Ziklag and they took it away. And you're asking, shall I go? What, what are you saying? Are you, are you not a mumu? You're a priest. That's why. Shall I go? So Andrew Max shares this very interesting story of how some guy defrauded him of a lot of money. He had saved up, saved up, saved up, He's, you know, partners that sent him money and then he wanted to do this massive project and then he gave it to a contractor that was a thief <laughs> the man stole his money and ran away and then he asked him, what was the meaning of this and then the lord showed him a part of scripture that said when a thief is uh, when a thief is apprehended that he must return sevenfold So he started rejoicing. Glory! So he went to calculate. He went to calculate how much did they steal from me? He multiplied it by seven. He got the solution. He said, wow! So this is how much I will make this year. Glory to God! I'm making $20,000 this year! And by the time he was going to calculate how much he made that calendar year, he was near to the dollar times seven of the amount that was stolen. Times seven of the amount that was stolen. Because he received the word from scripture. He stood upon it. Received it with joy. And he stopped grieving the amount that was lost. Because he chose to inquire of the Lord. Somebody else says, where's my lawyer? Where's my lawyer? Where is?" He? And then you want to, because you will not be a priest. You will not inquire of the Lord. If God had said, don't chase them, don't worry. David would have gotten far more. If he would obey the Lord. The problem is that you think God is not as smart as you. You, you, you really don't trust him. You think you are smarter. You think you are wiser than him. He will obey you. Eh? <laughs> <laughs> You think you are the smartest. You are the wisest. You are wiser than the wisest. So, whenever something happens, your mind just goes into activation. Like, what's the next thing to do? I have a lawyer. I have a police officer as a brother. <laughs> because I do. <laughs> so, I call my brother, you know, sorting, sort things out. But you are leaning on the arm of flesh. You have to be a priest. You have, you have known this girl for five years. I am still inquiring of the Lord. Shall I pursue? Don't lead the lady on. No? Shall I pursue for five years? I'm just using that as a. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> but you get the gist. That you have known this babe for three years does not mean you just assume that God has given a ratification for marriage. Till that day of wedding, oh Lord, if this thing is not planted by you, Lord, the Kobuko of heaven, the dagger of and you you, you pray like that, because that's what priests do till they put their thumb on it and they sign, they continue to pray. The same problem presented the same way, two absolutely different strategies for solution. That is how priests govern their affairs. The same problem, the same presentation, different strategies. So you must be obsessed with receiving instructions. If you are not obsessed with receiving instructions, you will assume instructions from the Holy Ghost. You would assume God, God is saying what he said. yesterday. Last week he told me this. Uh, let me just do the same thing. How about you ask again? And this is one of the reasons why God does not repeat himself. So that he can make you have the posture of dependence. If God will use the same template for Rachel for Ife Christie, why would Ife Christie need to have a personal relationship with Jesus? Just collect the template from Rachel and begin to adopt in your own life. That's not how God works. He makes sure he does not repeat himself ever. So that you will never have a sense of algorithmic prediction. Because it is based on historicals that you can project. So if God never repeated himself, all, your scatter diagram is too scattered. You can't even project anything. So that the next one, you still have to come back and ask, God, what's next now? Because we don't know how you will come this time. The same blindness, it may be speech this time. The same blindness, may be just raising, the same blindness, may be just speaking a word. The same condition, different ways to heal all of them. This Jesus, why, why are you doing like this? <laughs> you just want to confuse us so that there will never be a template for how to get healed. Never. It's by the hearing of faith. It's by the hearing of faith. There is no template for how to get healed. Though. It's by the hearing of faith. Your own healing might be lying on, lie on the floor for the next two days. Just lie on the floor, and that is where your healing will happen. Your own healing might just be go out and sweep the, the church. That's your. It is the hearing of faith. What God has ordained to be the solution for that time. That is what God has ordained you can't use a template of another man for your own new solution or new problem. No! It's the hearing of faith. It's different from doctrine. This is the working of, the, of, of miracles. It's different from doctrine. Doctrine is stable and sustainable for all times and dispensations. But the working of miracles is dependent on the now word, the hearing of faith. And priests understand that they don't use their discretion in the earliest of all. You don't even ask questions indiscriminately if an angel is talking to you. Because you can leave there doing... Because you acted. misguided. guided. You thought you had the opportunity to have a rapport. (laughs) Let me even have a a rapport with this angel. He said, do you know who you are talking to? I'm the angel of the Lord's presence. What's your problem? You will not even be able to talk. That's your punishment. You are talking to an angel. You are are rubbing your shoulder with me. What what do you mean? (laughs) And (laughs) Gabriel (laughs) vexed. Praise God. You don't use your discretion. Why, why? Because sometimes you wonder, why did God punish Moses that gravely? Why? He wanted to send a message to the children of Israel. This is not how to be a priest. You don't use your discretion in priesthood. You receive instructions. So if you're a believer and you are fond of not receiving instructions, you're a loose canon. Loose canon. They tell you to do something in church. You don't do it. You do what you want to do. That's not living a priestly life. A priest goes to receive instructions daily. You need to see that is the reason why we have the book of Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy. That is why we have those books. So that you see the exactitudes of what comes from the mount of God. When God is speaking to you on a mount, he's not giving you generalistic ideas. He's giving you specifics. Use the wood of offer. It must be three cubits long. It must be this height. This, it must be blue. It must be a linen effort. There was a ceremony around the getting dressed of a high priest. A high priest couldn't just like a a purple shoe and say, okay, today I have to wear a purple shoe. There is a proper ceremony around the robe. Everything is higher. The most skilled men were the ones that fashioned the robe of the high priest. There was a proper ceremony around them getting dressed. They don't just assume things. They don't just have preferences. You ask a high priest, "What was your best clothing? What's, what's my business with my best clothing? I don't have a. I'm talking about Survivor here. If I, if I have the best clothing, that's my last clothing. <laughs> you understand? <laughs> that would be the last clothes I wear. You want to enter into the earliest of all without the prescribed clothing? There's an undergarment. There is a linen effort. There are breastplates. There are shoulders. The, everything must be aligned. And there is something you must wear on your head. Hey. Praise God. Instructions. Not preferences, not what you would rather have. Hmm. Amen. Number. So that's number two, right? So good. So let me let me just show you something else that Saul did that was very ah, Saul. you know, and it's it's the beauty of scripture. Bible says all things that were written are for our time were written for our learning. So that we, through the comfort of scripture, might have hope. So every time you read about the demise or the foolishness of a king, it's not for you to be feeling superior to them. Because if you do have the privilege of what they went through and failed, you may repeat it exactly. So what it should do is to give you comfort that God, thank you for saving me with the history of this man. Because I would have been this foolish as well. So that through the comfort of scripture, we might have hope. Hope there is a strategy for alignment in the future. And so what happened was that four hundred years before Saul, Joshua had an arrangement with the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites were not Israelites, all right. But because Israel had, (laughs) Israel was like, you know, uh, what was that song again? I'm a wrecking ball or something. Was that song? Wrecking ball, I I don't know who sang the song. This is not an endorsement, but you understand the fact that it was such. It was like a missile. kind of country on their path they were just bam- they were just destroying them jericho i anything and they were smaller <laughs> and that was the exact reason why people kept you know undermining them and feeling that like, ah, it was israel because guess what for seven days israel was walking around your walls you did not fight because you you just dismissed their threats like what can they do the walls of jericho were so large and wide that seven chariots could run side by side that's 14 horses so it was too thick. There was no way they could penetrate. So there was, there was no point fighting them. So it was, it was a very proud, prideful superiority complex that the, the Jericho guys had towards Israel. So they just, like, what are these guys going to do? And it was a shout that brought them down. So the story, I mean, see how ridiculous. It was just a shout. They didn't even throw any sling. It was just a shout. So God is mighty. O. Anybody that despises you, despises you at their own peril. They look at you and say, what, what can you do? Ah, uh, Okay, I get back in. Do you understand there is somebody behind me. All right. And so the children of Israel had destroyed Jericho, destroyed I destroyed a number of all these kites. You know, you know the kites. <laughs> and so the, Je- the, the Gibeonites, they said, ah, it'd be like, say, now we next to so we had they had to develop a strategy. And they, they dressed like people that were coming from a far country, and then they came to Joshua and they, they lied, all right. And they manipulated Joshua and Joshua believed that they were coming from a far country. And so they, they, they said, please, please, just, just cut a truce with us and, you know, make a covenant with us. that you will not destroy us and you will not, you know, all of that. And Joshua, you know, inadvertently just made that covenant with them. And it was later they realized that they were actually be- Gibeonites that lived in the surrounding of the place. <laughs> and they felt deceived, but because they had now cut a covenant. And this should tell you the power of covenants. A covenant that was done in error. I was done in deception was still strong 400 years later covenant that was not even ratified by truth honesty and equity not, nothing like that it was deception lies all over but the fact so God ratifies covenant not the parties to it this is why it is marriage that God ratifies if you like don't choose where God has ratified the marriage Do you know what (laughs) I (laughs) said? You lie, you say, ah, Shabi, you lied to me. Why didn't you discover whether she lied to you before you said yes? If you have come to marriage and he blesses the marriage, he has blessed the marriage. If you like, be one right leg joined with the head. You know, imagine you put head on right leg. (laughs) And that is what God is seeing, because that is what you join together in the marriage. But you came, <laughs> amen, whatever that image is, and then you, you, you come to the altar and then he blesses that. That covenant stands true. It stands true. This thing will scare you. Gibeonites, 400 years later, they were still enjoying the benefits of a wrongly enacted covenant. So they were still in the land of Israel enjoying the benefit of citizenship. They should have been alienated and eliminated 400 years earlier, when Joshua was eliminating everybody on his path. But they deceived him into a covenant, and Joshua himself knew that he couldn't do anything beyond that covenant. And of course, it was taken as legend throughout this, and of course, of course, there was some sort of arrangement that they would be only temple servants. They would never rise beyond that level of economic status. And they were fine with it, because it's better to be a temple servant than to be dead. So... <laughs> 400 years later, they were still within that space. Then Saul comes and because they were staying around the Benjamites and Saul came from the tribe of Benjamin and so they were occupying a space that was personal to Saul. Saul dismissed, discounted the covenant that was enacted by the Gibeonites and Joshua 400 years later. I mean 400 years years earlier. That's to tell you the strength of covenants. When the Bible says, if you are joined with the harlot, you are one spirit. You better understand what the Bible is saying. Covenants are covenantal. And how you undo covenant is not by saying, I forgive you. (laughs) It is beyond that. Because by the time you see what happens here, Saul had died. He had killed the Gibeonites. He had taken them away. It was in the reign of David. That the consequences for Saul's foolishness began to now come to effect. Such that three years of famine. There was just famine. There was no reason for why the famine started. We don't know. And it was in time of David. David is a just man. What did David do? Like, what, what? And then David inquired of the Lord. And then the Lord told him. He said, it was the bloodthirsty house of Saul that caused these issues. Even in death, Saul was still causing calamity in Israel even in death, he was still affecting the destiny of Israel. There's a particular president of Barcelona, a past president, FC Barcelona. We are still reaping the consequences of his poor leadership. And he's pining me. Because if you know what that man did, even in his, he has left the ten of three, four years ago, but he's still, he's still suffering Barcelona. He's still suffering us. Bottom you. And that's to tell you how powerful leadership is. You have left the tenor. You have left the presidency. Four years down the line, you have not recovered from the atrocious things that you and your cronies did four years prior. So Saul is dead. Saul is gone. David and his constituency are suffering from the foolishness of Saul. They inquired of the Lord and they realized that it was Saul that dismissed and discounted the covenant that Joshua had with the Gibeonites. And so... David now had to go and appeal because there's no, there no, there no, there no dismissive way to go about it. David cannot say, what do you mean by that? I'm a man under authority. And then he, he, he destroys the Gibeonites. No, it would compound the problem. So he had to go and appeal to the Gibeonites. 400 years later, you know to go and appeal to the eyes that we are sorry about what happened. This is the king of Israel. Because he understood priesthood. He understood the weight of covenants. He understood the sacredness of oaths. He, he was a priest. He understood these things. That you don't, just, you don't just take for granted two people coming together and cutting a truce and making an oath. And you say, oh, well, they, just, they were just talking. It was just words. No. Marriage is a ceremony of words. But it's just as binding. If you understood how powerful words and oaths and covenants were, Saul did not understand it. Saul did not understand it. And so, David appealed to the Gibeonites. The Gibeonites said, sorry, it's blood for blood. We, we enacted this covenant by words, but it's blood that will, that will ratify it. It was what was spoken spoke 400 years later. 400 years earlier. Now that the covenant has been breached, it's only blood that can respond. So, seven sons of Saul were given. Seven. Hey, even in Saul's death. His family never recovered. His nation never recovered. What kind of a man is this? Because he was first a king before he was ever a priest. He didn't understand the magnitude of words, the weight of words, the weight of covenants and oaths. Let seven men of his sons be delivered unto us and we will hang them upon unto the Lord in Gibeah of Saul, whom the Lord did choose. And the king said, I will give them. There's, no, there's nothing. If they had asked for 15, they would have given them all of the 15. Because you have to satisfy the demands of justice. If Gibeonites asked for whatever, you give them everything they asked. You, were be- you became a slave to the terms of the covenant. And some of you just say things casually, you don't even know what you are saying. You are cutting covenants every year. Cutting. Grass cutter. <laughs> Just cutting, cutting covenants. You've got to be careful who you align with, who you partner with. Especially in marriage. Especially in marriage. Especially in marriage. You've got to be careful. Saul had no regard for instructions. You don't use your discretion as a priest. You ask for what is instructed and you do exactly. That's the only thing that gets blessed. If God did not need something to be done exactly, he won't say it. If he said it, it's because he needed it to be done exactly. Have you watched Nollywood before? You go to the chief priest. You tell them you want to be you want to be rich. What would they tell you? you? can't bring the canine of a mosquito. Where do you Where do you have to get it from? You can't use you can't use an ant's own. You can't use a cockroach own. It has to be a mosquito. You can't use incisor. You can't use molar. You can't use mole. It has to be a canine. <laughs> Cuckoo kill me? <came in. laughs> what? Where do you want me to get it from? And that's the nature of the priesthood. It's so exact. You'll be wondering where did this kind of instruction come from? Go and read the Leviticus. You will see how exact God is. It tells you the nature of priesthood. So if you live your life anyhow, you're not a priest. Anyhow living. I can go anywhere I want. I can be anywhere. I can be friends with whoever I want. Ah no. Exactitude. So Samuel tells us all: let's go to Gilgal to renew the kingdom to make sacrifices. First Samuel 8. Then Samuel is and Saul is there. And then there is a battle, all right, arranged. The Philistines are on, on his neck. The people are tired. He told them to fast. <laughs> so everybody's exhausted and everybody's dispersing from him. There's no energy. Everybody's distressed. And then in, in order to get the backing from a superpower, he then says, Where is where Saul? He told me to wait seven days. This is the seventh day already. Time is going. It's about to be evening. Let, let me start sacrificing. The Bible says I was afraid and I forced myself. To sac- you force yourself to sacrifice what did Samuel tell Saul you have acted foolishly foolishly you use your discretion to sacrifice do you know the amount of stones that need to be on the altar do you know the amount of water that needs to be poured do you know when the fire must come on it do you know what to be placed on the what are you you, you force yourself, what are you doing you've acted foolishly and in fact today the Lord would have established your kingdom forever but now he has taken it away from you because he used his discretion. He, he evaluated people higher than God. He placed more priority on people more than God. He would rather be in the presence of people than be in the presence of God. Someone would have understood and taught him if he had waited to be taught by a priest. That indeed, if you had God with you and he was the only one in front of you, you can sacrifice and it is a successful sacrifice. Than have a bunch of people around and God has left. So he said, the people were leaving, so he sacrificed. And then the next time, Samuel tells him, kill everybody in Amalek. Kill the king, kill the ox, kill the cattle, kill the sheep, kill the male, kill the female, kill the children. Kill everything. Then he gets there. He looks at the king. He said, You, I will make a spot of you in Israel. I will show everybody that I'm a king that can defeat another king. So he carries a gag. And then he sees some fatted calf. And he's like, Ah, I really know the nice, oh. And then he, he takes them along. He said, ah, God would like this one for a sacrifice. What are you saying? Discretion. You don't use your discretion priestly service. That's how Saul lost his kingdom. He kept using discretion. I can also do this now. I should be, I'm a king. No. You must first be a priest. If you understood the tenets of priesthood, you would understand how to move. What did David do when Uzzah died? He said, hey, take it away from me first. 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 Let's take it away first. Let me go and understand how this thing works. By the time he understood, he said, hey, let's go, go back. So they went, they, they the, the, the Levites, alright, the priests, they'll carry the ark, and then they'll move six feet, and then they'll wait, they'll sacrifice again, they'll move six feet, they'll sacrifice again. That was how they got it to... Exactitudes! And they put it on shoulders! Not on a cart that was well designed and, and spread with, with gold, whatever. On shoulders of priests. Exactitudes. If you will not do it the way God wants, just leave it. But to use your discretion to do what God has instructed... We pay dearly for it. This is priesthood. <laughs> this is priesthood. And then the last imperative in priesthood, the last imperative in priesthood is that a priest cannot afford to entertain lust. <laughs> leadership is a tough thing. So I, I wonder when people aspire to become leaders, if you really knew the demands of leadership, you will not be so excited about it though. When it comes, you will cry, you will wail, you will ask God for grace. Before you stand up from that place. You won't just say, hey, now give me the checkbook. Hmm. That's what's happening. People are not priests. And it is, you see, it is lust that corrupts the power of kingship. And it is in priesthood that the Lord will deal with your lust. So that by the time you become a king, your lust is at an all-time low your lost levels, and there are three things you typically would lust for. Money, women, and glory. Pastor Tuna Bakari put it so amazingly. He calls it, God's gold, God's girls, and then God's glory. God's money, God's women, and God's glory. Pride, lust, and greed. These three things, same thing. That was what corrupted Solomon's reign and his wisdom. A priest must not entertain lust. So God will win you of lusts as a priest. Because if you enter into kingship without having been weaned of lust, you will use your power to manifest all your desires and fantasies. That is when you will see a woman bathing at night or in the evening and you will use your power to get her into becoming a wife. And then you will use your devilish wisdom to kill her husband. If your lust has not... And and I'm not saying your lust will die. (laughs) Because you have to keep working on it. Remember, we talked about this in pneumatology. You keep working on it. It never really dies and leaves you and says, oh, you're not perfect. You will never be moved by a lady dressing naked. You will be moved, sir. You must just ensure that you limit the screen time you have with such things. And that's how you keep mortifying the deeds of the flesh. And you keep mortifying and mortifying and reducing the calls at night. And stop talking like a cat by 11... Hello. Uh, uh. (laughs) Amen. Sometimes you call some people with wonder. Who who am I speaking with, please? Because this voice. Yeah, yeah. (laughs) Talk sorrow, okay, (laughs) sorrow. A priest must be free of lust. Solomon's wisdom was deficient and this is where Solomon erred because the giftings and the callings of God are without repentance. He started the receiving of that wisdom in priesthood. Do you know what Solomon did? He offered gifts and sacrifices that nobody has ever offered before. He caught God's attention that night and God attended to him in a dream. He Let me check it again. 120,000 sheep, 22,000 oxen Do you understand what I'm saying? 120,000 sheep. 120,000. Not 500. Not 1,000. Not 10,000. Not 50,000. A 120,000 sheep. What what betides the Levites that killed? Because you you finish killing that, you go for like one month leave. Because there's no use for your legs and your hands anymore. Killing 120,000 sheep. And then 22,000 oxen. Wow. So he began his reign as a king on the premise of priesthood. In fact, that wisdom was given to him on the strength of his priesthood. Then he entered into priesthood and then women entered into his life and began to turn his heart towards other gods. He still had the wisdom, but he became perverted and corrupted. So because God will not remove that wisdom from you, or you will now demonize the wisdom. You will weaponize it. As a matter of fact, ancient rabbis, they claimed that Solomon was perceived as the second Pharaoh. He was a Jew. But because his kingship had been so weaponized by the adulteration of his heart, he had now become just as bad as Pharaoh. That is, you, you, he did not have social goodwill. Only international relations among the streets of Israel, they were hissing and cursing. But ask the neighboring countries. Ask Niger. Ask Ghana. Ask Benin. Hey, hey, guys! You guys should focus. <laughs> Amen. You guys should focus. So, ask all these neighboring com- uh, countries. They were hailing Solomon. In fact, they would submit their daughters to him to marry. That was how he actually gathered all those seven hundred wives and concubines. Many of them were not Jewish. Many of them came from the neighboring nations that came to visit him for the wisdom that he had. And then as they are coming, they will just bring one woman. They will just bring their daughters. bring their, And then they were supplying him a ah, steady dose of women. 700 of them. 300 concubines. 1,000 women in your haram. Three and a half years. You have not finished sleeping with all of them. If you were sleeping with each one every day. Three and a half years, you may... Ne- you- and all of them came from different countries. And then, they, as you spend, because they know that that's the only night they will have for the next three or four years. So as they spend that night with them, they will ask all their requests. No, you know, that's the only way it can work. So they, because that's the only way you can prove that you are the queen to Solomon. Shebi is the richest man. So it was on the strength of the demand of all those wives that he was manually abusing his men. To continue to work and work and dig and dig and get him gold, He was to satisfy the allures of the lost in his household. So his men were abused by the time he died. Everybody he the sigh of relief. Rehoboam went and wanted to act more foolishly. He went to the old men, they gave him sound advice. He went to his, the young men, the young men said, Oga, show them. Let them know that a new boss is in town, a new sheriff is in town. Tell them that, you see, whatever my father did is, is waste. is like, going to be like my pink. And I'm like, what, what kind of advisors are this? And then by the time he went to the land of Israel to see all of those things, he said, okay, go ahead and do what you want to do. But uh, to your time, O Israel, believe in what you cannot see. <laughs> and that was how Israel disintegrated from a unit. To becoming two entities, Judah and Israel, it got to a point that Judah and Israel began to fight. A nation that is one under God, but because of poor leadership, bad management, Israel became two entities. So, if two of them are fighting, who does God defend? Who does God? You, who, who will God stay behind? Judah was still perhaps the most preserved. Israel, oh yeah, Israel. KJV said Israel went a warring. That's the KJV language. They, they serve anything and anything. If you presented yourself as servable, they will serve you. That was how far gone they were from the tenets of priesthood. Whereas in Exodus 19, remember, God created them to be a kingdom of priests and they didn't know the first thing about priesthood because they are terrible kings. So you see how kingship can warp a people, can take them away from the the trajectory of the spirit for their lives and their destinies just by having a bad leader you can, you, can, you can miss your destiny can you imagine that the things that God did not have in his mind the kind of collateral damage the kind of you know second plans and third plans and plan G's that God had to be activating simply because a Saul became king if they had just waited on the Lord to give them a king that was first a priest all these things would not happen I hope you know because everything now took reference from that divergence that even David by the time he missed his, his, his landmark in priesthood just by a few years or few days or few months, he had already slept with Bathsheba, he had already killed a man he had already lost a son he had already empowered a terrible guy as his valiant man in Joab he had already empowered the worst person in his rank Joab was the person you didn't want to tell your secrets and that was the man that had all David's secrets, So he couldn't, he couldn't control Joab. So anything Joab did, Baba will have to keep quiet. Joab did a lot of things that were not sanctioned. But David could not sanction him. So the thing he told Solomon was, the moment to become king, Ah, Joab, kill him first! Because if he writes a letter, if he says a thing, it would, it would destroy my legacy. It would mention all the things that I've done. So kill him first. I can't kill him. I can't kill him, oh priesthood is so delicate and this is how you must govern your lives you must first be a priest so look at your life and look at all these things that we have shared today don't entertain lust that's what happened to solomon he entertained lust and then he corrupted his wisdom and his wisdom became a philosophy Oh, what is life It was the wisdom that came from above because it was God that gave him. But at the end of his days, we realized that it had become perverted because all the treasures of wisdom and knowledge are still in Christ. And that is why the lowest in this kingdom is greater than Solomon. Because the wisdom of Solomon became so perverted because his heart was ridden by lust. A priest cannot afford to have another person sitting on the throne of his heart apart from the Christ. It cannot be money. It cannot be women. It cannot be glory. It cannot be pride. You cannot be trying to become something you are not. If God does not give you anything, you don't need it. It will destroy you. Be content with such things as you have. For I have said, I will never leave you nor forsake you. So that you can boldly say, the Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid what man can do unto me. That's the mantra of priests. The Lord is my light and my salvation. Whom shall I fear? The Lord is the strength of my life. Of whom shall I be afraid? That's the mantra of priests. If I have God, I have everything I need. If I had God plus nothing, I have everything. Everything minus God is still nothing. That's how priests think. All the social media following in the world. Everything you're looking for without God is still nothing, sir. It's still nothing. It's still nothing. Let's bow our heads wherever we are right now and ask God, and Lord, in these three areas, these three imperatives, help my life, help my heart. That in the name of Jesus, help me to identify with the people you have sent me to lead. Help me to hold sacred, the sacred things of the temple. And Lord, help my heart against lust. There is nothing the Lord warns us against more than lust. Nothing. The Lord warns us against more than lost. Nothing the Lord warns us against more than lost. Ask God to help your heart. Ask God to help your heart. You have no idea how far gone you will be if you do not steep your leadership in priesthood. You will be surprised. If, if David can fall, Ogah, you have not yet received the compliment as the man after God's heart. So you had better even be more circumspect and hold dearly to your life and say, God, if you do not help me, I cannot be helped. Search me, O oh God, if there's any wicked way in me and lead me in the path everlasting. Ask God for help this morning. Ask God for help. Ask God for help. And if you will fall before God in priesthood, you will rise before men in kingship. If you will fall before God in priesthood, in service, in honor, in instruction, in submission, you will rise before men. You will rise before men in kingship in kingship in kingship in kingship father we give you praise we give you all the glory and we give you all the honor power majesty and praise be unto you for in jesus precious name we have prayed lord help our hearts today you know it's easy to judge other people and say oh that person was never a praise boy became making that person that person The real character here is you. The real character here is you. Ask yourself, am I a priest in my office? Am I a priest in my family? Am I a priest in my home? Or I'm just a figurehead king? Because any king that was never a priest is a figurehead. Imagine, Saul knew from the second year that God had rejected him. Samuel did not spare him. He always told him every chance he got. That God... God has taken the kingdom away from you. And he reigned for 40 years. So for 38 years, this guy knew, I'm not the man for this job. So that you are staying on the throne does not mean you are on that throne. But second year, Saul already knew that God did not accept him. All those errors happened from the second year. And he still reigned 38 more years. See, God can do without a position. It's not a big deal. He's after, He's, after He's after your heart. 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 Father, we give you praise. Father, we give you praise. Help our hearts, Lord. Help our hearts, Lord. Help us not to go after things that would take our hearts away from your throne, from your worship, from your from the awe of you. Don't let anything take our hearts. And for Solomon, it was women. Maybe for you, it's followings. Maybe you have 100 people you follow that are introducing ideologies that are not consistent with the, Lord of God, the law of God. And you listen to that podcast, you listen to this podcast, you read this book, you check this one out. Your own may not be women. It may be a lust for knowledge. It may be a loss for things that will make your heart divergent. Ask God to help you. Don't take these prayers lightly. Pray these prayers. Trust God to help you. Trust God to help you. And He will. Father, we give you praise. For in Jesus' precious name we have prayed. Lord, we ask that we are established in this truth and in all righteousness. In Jesus' precious name we have prayed. Can we celebrate Jesus this morning? Hallelujah. Very quickly, let's give our tithe and our offerings. Let's give. Wow, what a word. For more messages, connect with our tribesmen across all social media platforms at PowerPoint Tribe.